Welcome to episode 25 of the Cosmic Pirate Podcast. Joined by Roger and Cindy this evening. How are you doing tonight, guys? Wonderful. Just fine and dandy. Fine and dandy, good. Good, good, good. Tonight, we're doing uh, a special episode of This Month in History. Um, I thought that would be kind of neat to try. Roger gathered a bunch of stuff. Cindy gathered some specific science history stuff. And I have some assorted items, too, we can... We can uh, toss in there. Uh, starting with some wacky news, though. Did you guys gather any wacky news stuff, or did you just focus on the main main thing? No. No news here. I've got one. Okay. You ready for it? Yeah. Alright, as you know, I live in Michigan. And it has right. been very windy lately in Michigan. Apparently, I didn't know how windy it had been. <laughs> How windy was it? Uh, there you go. Thank you, Raj. Uh, the title. Try it again. No, the title. How windy was it? <laughs> the title of this uh, news story is "Chihuahua Found Mile from Home After Wind Gust." Oh! <laughs> How could you resist that story, right? Well, I, what I'd like to know is who kicked it to get it airborne in the first place. <laughs> well, I- and the people. St- <laughs> Well, the people, people down below for miles were hearing like, I hear some yapping on the wind. What is that? <laughs> yap, 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 yap. <laughs> As it fades by. So I don't even need to read the story. It's it's kind of self-telling, right? <laughs> I'll read it anyway. <laughs> read it anyway. All right. Waterford Township, Michigan. Tinkerbell, a chihuahua. Tinkerbell. How appropriate. Too bad it yes. wasn't called Toto or something. It, oh, Toto would have been... Perfect. Uh, Tinkerbell has been reunited with her owners after a 70-mile-per-hour gust of wind picked up the six-pound oh, chihuahua crap. and tossed her out of sight. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to try that. Next time I think I'm going to get like a 70-mile-an-hour gust of wind, I'm going to take a six-pound bag of sand and throw it in the air and see what happens to it. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have happened to a nicer breed. Yeah. Oh, oh the interesting thing is, speaking of uh, Toto... Uh, the owners' names were Dorothy <laughs> and Laverne Utley. Uh, the the story gets kind of silly because they they say they credit a pet psychic for guiding them on Monday to a wooded area, nearly a mile from their house, where eight month old Tinkerbell had been uh, last seen. Did the psychic visit the house and just notice the wooded area nearby and just? Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, something. Which way was the wind blowing? That way? Yeah. Oh, look in the woods. Look in the there woods. There you go. Yeah, there <laughs> you could go. could have gotten the same result from a meteorologist. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that's pretty much it. That's funny. You know, yeah. it's amazing, though. Uh, I don't I don't fall for the whole psychic thing. I think it's a bunch of baloney. I actually really despise psychics. If you If you go to any one of these psychics and don't say a word, they won't get you. They won't read you. When they when they ask you questions, they're leading you to answer and give them information that they can then build stuff on, you know? Of yeah. course, they're scam they, artists. They throw out sketchy items and they see what sticks. And you just then they just keep following those little breadcrumbs that you give them, you know, by reaction, reacting. And if you just... Right. If, I, I would love to go to a psychic and just say, okay, what do you see? And not answer, not say a single word. Because look, I'm coming to see, you're a psychic. You obviously should just notice stuff. Right. Here's my name, my birth date, and my, uh, you know, my whatever. Tell me oh, something. Is that like the uh, the psychic, uh, that, what was that one, uh, you call the uh, psychic hotline or something like that, and the woman had no idea that she was about to go bankrupt? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't see that coming though, did you? <laughs> I don't know. And you got you have TV shows like Oprah bringing these psychics on their shows. And it just gives them even more credibility. Complete nonsense. Utter nonsense. Um, but enough on that crap. I have a vacuum news item. Uh, and, and this one, I, I'll read the short, I'll read the funny one first. This one's really comical. Um, man who slept with gun shoots self. <laughs> and there's this okay. there's a little subheader to this it's from metro you know the metro.co.uk that news thing out there um 
The subhead is even funnier. Man shoots himself by accident while sleeping with his forty caliber pistol. Couldn't see that one coming. Oh, no. <laughs> People are just idiots, I swear. A gun. Not to be confused with, say, a hot water bottle or a blankie. A man who slept with his gun... Blankie. <laughs> a man who slept with his gun may have to rethink that particular life strategy after he, shot, after he shot himself while sleeping. The 24-year-old man of Northport, Alabama, told police that he was... He must have accidentally let off the forty caliber pistol by knocking it with his hand. The gun discharged, hitting the man in the shoulder. Luckily, he didn't shoot himself in the head and die. Yeah. The injury was not life-threatening, said Captain Lloyd Baker of the Tuscaloosa County Metro Homicide Unit, who did not have a homicide to investigate. Very good. Then <laughs> <laughs> why was he there? Huh? <laughs> And why were you I said, exactly? why was he there? I don't know. Maybe everybody else was on was on call somewhere. Unbelievable. Uh, what gets me is there's so many people that have killed themselves by sleeping with a gun under their pillow. Yeah, but I mean, like how many times has that happened before? You know, people learn it. Mm, that's not a good idea. Yeah, but how do you just how do you end up just whacking the gun and like having it go off anyway? Don't you like, kind of pull the trigger for those things? Well, it's possible that he could have been gripping the thing while he was sleeping and not realizing it. But I mean. He'd have to knock the safety off and hit the trigger. If he even yeah, had the safety on. Yeah, you know, when you're sleeping, right. you move around a lot. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Until you hear that big bang. <laughs> uh, shall I read my other wacky news one? Sure. Or go right into our uh, our episode here? Oh, I'm having fun with wacky news. Go for it. Okay, so we just, we'll cover this for a couple minutes, and then we'll get on to our main main topic. This I, this I found on the USA Today blogs. Apparently, peaceful orange blobs found in Roswell, New Mexico. UFO investigators digging at a site in Roswell, New Mexico, where some eyewitnesses claim to have seen the crash of a mysterious craft in 1947, report they found something. At this point, we don't know what it is or why it was there, said UFO investigator Chuck Zukowski. I don't want to speculate. The artifacts were found in 2002 during a dig sponsored by the Sci-Fi Channel. Zukowski said it took years for them to figure out whether they could run tests on the items. Now, how does that, Cindy? Please, scientist. Come on. How, do, how does it? How does it take years to figure out whether you can run tests on an item? I can only imagine what they were doing for uh, what? Would you say 2001? 2002. Oh yeah, seven years. Yeah. <laughs> uh. The only thing I can imagine that would take that long to figure something like that out is government red tape, which is probably what it was. Yeah, but government red tape, why do you have to bring it to government to uh, get something? Bring oh, it to I'm a sh- private I'm sure they had lab. some control over anything that happened there. I have no idea. You think? It's not like Area 51. It's Roswell. It's well, not government land. Um, but other than that, no, I can't imagine any reason why it would take so long to figure out if they could have it tested. Yeah. Zukowski, gee, it's like you're sitting there looking at it. Gee, uh, can we have this tested? I don't, I don't know. Well, let's sit on it for a while. Uh, Zukowski and his sister Debbie, whatever Ziegelmeyer, who is state director of the Mutual UFO Network in Missouri, found a tiny piece of silvery material, which is mostly aluminum silicate, that ha- that began to curl up after it was exposed to sunlight. Cindy. Do you know anything about aluminum silicate, 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 whatever you want to call that? Not specifically, no. Okay. Do you know of any metal or any material like the uh, like this, any compound that might curl up upon exposure to the sun? And why well, that? Sure, lots, why, lots of things would. But why would I that? Because maybe they evaporate water, water molecules in there, and the and the thing contracts. Well, all kinds of metals contract when they get hot, so. Of course, they can change shapes depending on their density and all that. Okay, so it's so it's very yeah. It could be a very and ha- thin... how much the temperature changes too. Sure. So if it's a if it's a shiny metal, very thin shiny metal, natural compound, maybe exposing it to that heat would just cause it to contract. Absolutely. Curl in on itself. So that's not something that's that necessarily unearthly. Oh no, that's not a phenomena. No. <laughs> Phenomena. 
I love that show. Oh, man. Uh, Bill Dolman, a retired archaeologist who supervised the dig, said aluminum silicate is not uncommon in nature, but that there seems to be nothing around that would contain or produce the compound. Dolman also reported finding orange blobs that were determined to be heat-resistant synthetic substances. <laughs> one, one blog commenter wrote, hmm, they found insulation. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I mean, the, Dolman says the... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Dolman says the investigators are hoping to get some funding for professional labs and professional labs to identify the material. Funding? What I mean, what? Now, How much funding do you need to get yeah, a sample Yeah, there's got to be some scientists <laughs> out there who would examine this stuff for free. I mean, it can't be hard to throw something under your, under your microscope and say, well, it looks like rubber or, you know. Yeah, but it took them seven years to figure out that they can actually do some tests on it. How long is it going to take them to get a scientist to actually do tests on it? Who knows? There's some missing information there. It depends on how much publicity they get and if they can write a book about it or not, maybe. Exactly. That's why they're drawing it out. Keep your eyes on the news for that. Writing a book about their experiences. The new Roswell mystery uncovered. I bet you that won't take seven years. Mm. No. Okay. So uh, let's move on to our... um, our main topic this month in history. Cindy will be will go will go uh, one at a time, and and we'll maybe start with Cindy. Cindy will be pr- presenting uh, this month in science history, science related events or uh, you know things like that that have happened in May. Roger will be, be presenting us, I think, with more general uh, historic events and and you know ground. Breaking, whatever you know, you know what I'm saying. Or as somebody once told me, uh, history, 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 right? Real uh, history, r- r- real history, which yeah, because everything else is not not real history, which happened in May. And I will, I <laughs> I, I found a bunch of odd, uh, quirky kind of stuff to present in a couple different categories. So uh, let's do that, uh, Cindy. Go ahead and bring us one of yours let's. first, and uh, let's. Let's uh, see what we got going in the month of May. Do we want to gauge how much information we're we're gonna do here? Because I've got uh, I've got some famous births, and then I narrowed it down to about five events. After that, uh, is that too much? Well, what? Well, no. We'll just what. Let's start with what you think are the coolest ones. Yeah. And uh, we'll try to keep it kind of short. And I only have. I mean, I've got a bunch. We don't have to do all of them. You know, we'll not spend too much time in each one. We'll just go through and uh, come. Sure. Yeah, I, I'd say don't go into too much detail because then my stuff will look real lame compared to yours. Oh. Because I don't have a whole lot of detail. I don't either. I don't either. All yeah, right, neither I'm do just I. Gonna, it, looks like just gonna, it looks like we can keep it all pretty short and uh, and just, you know. We won't get sidetracked too much, right? Right. Agreed? Agreed. All right. We, Raj, and we you should try this. You with us on that one, Raj? Not to get too sidetracked. Sure. Yeah. We'll try to keep it succinct. Well, you're the one that gets I know, sidetracked. I know. It's always me. It's always my fault. Just trying to get buy-in from everybody, Drew. Right, but is my... <laughs> I just sit here and chuckle. All right, without further ado, Cindy. All right, I just want to go through some, <laughs> some famous births, people born in May, mm-hmm. that contributed something significant to science. And I, I tried to be fair I've got a couple of Fahrenheit. females a couple of males yes ah. how did you know that's one of the four we'll start with him Gabriel Fahrenheit born May 14th 1686 mm. damn that's a do? long time ago he's an old well, he was timer. a ger- German physicist and Fahrenheit basically Roger. the thermometer he played with mercury mercury thermometer I know yeah well, okay Roger was being a wiseacre wiseacre um Yuck, 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 yuck. Evelyn Granville. Yeah. Which, what do you guys know about her? I, had, I know nothing. I've never heard that name. Okay. Me she, neither. Or if she, I have, I don't remember. May 1st, 1924, she was born. She was the first woman in America to earn a PhD in math. Ah. I thought that was cool. Smart cookie. Uh, Wilhelmina Fleming. Wilhelmina Fleming. She not only was born in May, but she died in May. Oh, same year? <laughs> not th- 
not the same year. No, well, no, she did something in science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, she's really, really smart. Damn. As as okay. She popped out. She started working in the lab. She was a Scottish American astronomer who discovered ten of the twenty-four Nova. Nice. Wait, wait. What, what, was, what was her name? Wilhelmina Fleming. Fleming, and she discovered some uh, Novas. You said. Yep, and she also discovered over two hundred stars. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, very cool. There was one more, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. In- yeah, he was oh, born cross May him 6, off my list. 1856. <laughs> oh, he wasn't on your list. Yes, he was. No, for real? Well, that was a yeah. science one, though, Raj. That would have been considered. Actually, not really. I was just, that's I was just going through and picking out big names. That, I would. Yeah, I guess that would be. I would consider that science. That's psychology. I mean, you know, he's the he's the guy that has all the psychiatry and psychoanalysis stuff. Right. Yeah. The modern stuff's based on, right? He is the he's the uh, the subject of the phrase the Freudian slip. All right, Raj, I'm gonna shut up so you can go. No, that's it. Uh, I, I'm, I can't. I can't go now. Oh. I'm, I'm all upset. Oh. <laughs> all good. right. Uh, how about I start with some birthdays, too? Yeah, then? go for it, man. Okay, gold of my year. May 3rd, 1898. Who? Who's that? You don't know who Golda Meir is? No. No? She was Prime Minister of, of uh, Israel from 1969 to 1974. One of the founders of the modern state of Israel. Wow. Now, see, I'm surprised you never heard the name. You're surprised I never heard the name. Roger. Yeah. I'm not. I'm impressed that you know the name, but you are a history buff. Yeah, but I also remember that name from the news. No. When, when, when do you remember me ever reading the freaking news? Come on. I don't read the news if either. I, I watch it on TV. If I wasn't drawing pictures <laughs> or programming my computer or watching horror movies or playing my guitar, I wasn't doing anything. Okay. Well, I'll try a couple more names that maybe you've heard of. How about Karl Marx? Oh, yes. I've heard of Karl Marx. Heard of him, uh, yes. The father of communism? Yep. Well, he was born on May 5th, 1818. And let's see. Here's one that really uh, surprised me. Uh, Irving Berlin. Huh. I'm sure. sure you've heard of him. Yes. He was born on May 11th, 1888. Now, I had no idea. That guy lived to be 101 years old. Woo! Wow. Because he was born in 1888 and died in 1989. I never knew that he was that old. Wow. Damn. Man... And we can only all live that long, right? And since we're talking music, how about Johann, Johannes Brahms? Brahms? Huh. Yes. May 7th, 1833. Cool. Have you ever heard of Florence Nightingale? I've heard the name, yes. 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 May 12th, 1820. 1820. And, uh, and when did she, when did she uh, pass on? Uh, 1910. So she was 90, 90 years old, wow. too. Mm. Wow. And you know what? The nursing hasn't been the same since. And you know what? In that time, I, I think I think living past like 60 was pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. In the, in, the, in, the early, in the turn of the century there? One more very important birthday. Okay. Tomorrow. My dad. Oh. Aww, happy nice. birthday, Roger's dad. Very cool. Is he going to listen to? The, does not, he listen to the podcast at all? I don't think so. No, we got to get him hooked up. I don't think he would know how to do it. Where does your dad live? Where does he live? About yeah. a mile and a half uh, north of me. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's why uh, Roger goes to dinner like every Friday with his parents. Nice. In fact, we'll be going to dinner tomorrow too. Cody's so, Roadside. As I say, where do you go? Oh, we just went to the IHOP. I wish I lived closer to my parents, but uh, let me share one of my news items. Uh, yeah. I have, or not news items, I'm sorry. Um, one of my history items. I actually have, wouldn't you guess, a item about beer. No. Um, yeah. Really? And, and being that I was born in Japan, 
I found an item on a Japanese beer. I'm saying Japanese like an idiot. Uh, Asahi beer was launched in May of 1892. And further, in May of 1963, two bottled draft versions of Asahi beer were offered. The Asahi Bin Nama, which is bottled draft beer, and the Asahi Takudai Bin Nama, which is extra large bottled draft beer. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I actually went to the five liter bottle. Yeah. Actually, they, 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 they released a seven liter bottle, a draft keg, not a bottle, a draft keg beer uh, in 1977. Their first beer in a small aluminum keg was made, was made available in 1977. In 1979, a three liter version of that aluminum keg was, uh, was offered then. But I actually went to the liquor store and I was going to pick up a can of Asahi because I've seen it locally in this one liquor store. And I was like, you know what? I've never tried it. I should try it. Give it a shot. I've never even heard of it. They sell them in those. In the singles case, you know, Raj, if you go to the liquor store and you see, like, there's one section of the free, uh, fridge where they might <laughs> – one section of the fridge where they might have the singles. The, lar- the larger bottles, like the like the one-pint bottles or the liter size. Mm-hmm. I saw an Asahi, like a tall silver can of Asahi in my, in my local liquor store. But wouldn't you know it, they did not have it when I went by there the last time. So uh, I have to pick some of that up for the future and give that a shot. I think it's just going to be like your typical, you know, pale lager type of beer. Um, Probably. Uh, but, but I mean, being that it's a Japanese beer, it might actually taste better than Coors or Bud. Uh, yeah, but that ain't saying much. But now, Roger, yeah. you might find this rather interesting. I might. That in May of 1996, Asahi entered into a comprehensive business alliance with Bass Brewers of the UK. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what that uh, was for. But actually, uh, there's one from... I actually have a stupid beer-related item from last month. um, Uh Uh-oh. But it's a very important date. I think it should be mentioned. Um, In April of 1933, what happened, friends? Prohibition ends for beer! (laughs) Woo-hoo! Ah, Yes. No more exploding Dead. bottles in the tub. Yeah, no. As my father would say, uh, no more bathtub beer. Remember when we first started brewing together? My dad was like, "You guys making it a bathtub? Bathtub beer? How's that bathtub beer coming along?" <laughs> so anyway, let's get let's go back to a science one with Cindy. Uh, what you got there, Cindy? This story is uh, written up like a story rather than just a couple of sentences. So I'm just going to read it. All right. Scopes Monkey Trial. Does that sound familiar? Scopes? Oh, this is ringing a bell for some reason. A guy's name. The Monkey Trial is ringing the bell, but the name? What was it? Well, that's the guy that was involved, so you may not recognize the name. Yeah, but how did you pronounce that? Scopes. Scopes? Like as in like, got to rinse my mouth? The mouthwash. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm going to read this. All right. In some day in May, I don't know when it was, in 1925, a meeting of local leaders was held in Dayton, Tennessee, to plan a challenge to that state's new law, the Butler Act, which made it illegal to teach Darwin's theory of evolution in a public school. Ah, oh, right, right. Ah. Oh. Now I know why it sounds okay. familiar. Okay, so this, this guy, George Rapalea, and other local leaders of the small mining town met at uh, this drugstore and the American Civil Liberties Union in New York concerned by the law's infringement on constitutional rights, had advertised an offer to give legal support to any teacher who would challenge the law. And so this guy, Rapalia, saw the publicity that would accompany this, uh, you know, to promote the town. So he approached this teacher, John T. Scopes. He was a teacher and a football coach at the, at the school in this town. Okay. Um, and basically said, you know, they wanted him to challenge this new law so that's that's the story but challenge the, the, challenge the butler law the law that you could not teach darwin teach to, evolution darwin in darwinian evolution in uh, in school right do you know that there are um there are now these back and forths in texas right now i think where there's a group trying to push 
um, for the teaching of intelligent design alongside evolution as a as a equal and just as possible theory? Please. I mean, science has, has whittled this down over over centuries. Yeah. To to Darwinian evolution being veritable fact now. Yes. And and the only real way to explain how we've come about. And and intelligent designer is not even in the equation right now because you can't prove or disprove it. But you need to look at things objectively and logically with what you've got right in front of you. Evidence. You yeah, know. the intelligent design thing, they're they're behind the curve a bit. And there's, They've got a ways to go to gain some fact to support it. Yeah, and well and and certainly there are facts, there are plenty of of there's plenty of evidence against intelligent design because I mean there's a lot of ways that you can look at at life and say, well, if it was intelligent intelligently designed, why do we die? If it was intelligently designed, why do we grow old? Why are there these limitations on our cells? You know, and then you've just got a whole nother philosophical can of worms to open up to handle that crap. So anyway, enough about that crap. Raj, what you got? I, or I'm sorry, Cindy, go ahead. No, I wanted to squeeze one in here because it's really quick. Here, I got to squeeze one in too. Sorry. Oh, jeez. Actually, I meant squeeze one out. Uh, but it was fake. Okay. <laughs> I just like Cindy's reaction. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm just squeezing this one in because uh, Roger, I don't know if Roger knows this, but I I'm might. currently employed at a, a company that actually manufactures the anthrax vaccine for the federal government mostly. Did you know that? Uh, no. I don't think I shared that with okay. Roger. She works at... Um, uh, and a company, <laughs> a company, which we'll, uh, we won't yeah. disclose on the podcast. But yeah, they're the only <laughs> FDA-approved manufacturer of the uh, of the current anthrax vaccine that the the government uses. Cool stuff. Anyway, in uh, 1881, in May, Louis Pasteur tested inoculations against anthrax upon ox, cows, and sheep. His experiment proved successful and was a milestone in the treatment of this disease. Cool. So I just saw that. Thought it was cool. Very cool. And he's also the guy that uh, started pasteurizing milk, ain't he? Yeah, absolutely. Louis Pasteur. Very important guy in science microbiology. Louis Pasteur. And milk production. Immu- immunology. Is it Pasteur or Pasteur? You're asking the wrong person. I think yeah, I'm not French, so I don't know. Pasteur what? Pasteur Prime? Past my bedtime. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Here's a biggie. On May 7th in 1915, the Germans torpedoed the Lusitania. Oh. Okay, delete that one. No, we can't delete it. It's part of history. No, I had one on my... <laughs> well, that's part of history now, too. <laughs> but anyway, that's what got the U.S. into uh, World War One. Ah, that is right. I mean, we would have probably wound up in anyway, but that was just the uh, turning point. Because there were so many Americans on that ship. When it was torpedoed, supposedly there was uh, supplies for the Allies on on board, so that's why the uh, Germans torpedoed it. Of course, there's controversy as to whether or not there actually was anything on board. Naturally, the historians over here are saying no, 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 because then that would make us look like the bad guys, but it could have been. Talking about like starting wars and, and history, I was listening to an interview... Uh... With someone on one of my, one of the other podcasts that I subscribe to, and she said it amazed her how how ignorant a lot of today's youth are with history. Oh yeah, she was. She overheard it was actually on nine eleven. I think she was in Upper Manhattan and walked into a place just to get out of the 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 mess or whatever and. She hears two guys who were talking about the the situation that's going on, the World Trade Center nine nine eleven thing. And um, one guy says, "Man, it's like Pearl Harbor all over again." The other guy said, and they were they were in their thirties, guys. The first guy, the first guy says, "This is just like Pearl Harbor all over again." The second guy goes, "What's Pearl Harbor?" And the first guy goes, "Pearl Harbor." That's when the Japs bombed one of our ports in uh, California, and we started World War Two. 
Oh my god. That's pitiful. Roger is very knowledgeable with this history stuff. We we should sit down and have a talk about history sometime, Roger. I'd learn a lot, I'm sure. I love history and I don't know enough about it, so I think it it would be cool to bring a, a history trivia thing. We should have a question answer with Roger. Yeah. Oh no 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 no. Why not? Well, you know I, what you do, I love Roger. History. You just you give me way too much credit. Well, I well, don't know as well, much as well, well, you, you know, think I do. You 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 know more than we do, and I'll guarantee you, you probably know more than a lot of uh, John Q. Public out there. So, yeah, from what you just said, I would believe that. What if you were to give us an outline of stuff that you are, you know, stuff that your is your stronger points? No, or you just rather avoid doing something like that? Well, I. Tell you the truth, I would rather avoid doing something like that because I don't know a lot. Okay. I know a little about a lot, but not a lot about anything particular. I mean, if I had to pick anything, I would say World War II is what I know the most about, but I don't know enough about it to just sit down and have a uh, question and answer about World War II because you'll stump me in no time. Isn't the uh, war what prompted your family to come to uh, America? Well, actually, yeah, the, but... My f- father and I can I can go on about tell you the whole story, but we, let's not do that tonight. Let's get through the podcast and then we'll go in. We can, if you guys want to still hang out and, and chat, we can uh, talk about that a little bit then. Okay. Who was just Who was just uh, sharing? Uh, that was me. Okay. Are you all, Are you done there? Basically, yeah. Okay. I have one for 1977 in May. Apple II computer systems are made available and begin selling for $1,295. Wow. <laughs> now, those were being built in the uh, in a garage, weren't they? Well, I think the Apple Ones were built in a garage. Yeah, and they, they started securing funds and taking <clears throat> orders uh, for products they hadn't even produced yet. They were back-ordering stuff because they were, they were just interested in getting some capital. So they started selling their computers but they hadn't even built them all yet. You know, so they were getting that money up front, which was kind of a good thing because it allowed them to get some uh, get some money in the bank where they can then go in and, and get some resources and and get the computers built and shipped out and uh, continue selling and advertising. And then, boom, there you got an Apple, you know? Yeah. Really, a, really an unbelievable story. Uh, and all, again, in, in May of 1979... Tandy announces the TRS-80 Model 2. My father had a TRS-80 that I used to play uh, adventure games on for years. Those old text adventures, like yeah. Zork. Mm-hmm. You remember Zork? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got fun. a uh, Zork anthology right behind me as we speak. <laughs> the old text adventures were cool. There was something about them. And for some reason, to this day, every time somebody says... The word bar, I just think bar, bar, and that was from Zork. You're in a big round room and everything, any sound or anything that you typed in, oh, echo. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it would say, there's, you're in a big, loud, round room and there's a bar on the floor and you say, pick up bar, and it'll go bar, bar. So what did you have to do? I forget. Oh, I don't remember what it was. See, I don't remember that one. I remember a game called Pyramid 2000 or something like that. And it was, there was one section of it where it didn't matter what you typed. There was a certain sequence that you had to type. Otherwise, you would never get out of it. Right. You know? And Zork had one of those. And there was a password for one of them was like XYZZY or something like that. <laughs> password for getting into some, one of the dungeons or something like that. I forget. I think that was on Stone of Sisyphus. They were cool games, really cool games. Um, and back in the day, a lot of these games were written in BASIC, which was first run in 1964 on May 1st at Dartmouth College in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Hey, there we go. Another tie yep. into history. Cool. Another tie into history. <laughs> was developed by professors John Kemeny, Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz, uh, BASIC is an acronym for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. It's based on Fortran and ALGOL, or whatever, and was developed for General Electric 225 mainframe computer. Really? 
Yeah. I remember trying to learn BASIC. It became the most popular in introductory programming language for microcomputers, often stored in ROM and executing commands interactively. Now, I did program BASIC a lot. I actually, my, one of my first jobs was a stint as a programmer at some insurance company somewhere. Basic programming compiled it. But it's, it's that, the logic steps that I learned when I was programming basic carry over now to my web design stuff. Like when I'm programming, when I'm doing scripting and stuff like that for some of the web pages and some of the stuff like that, mm -hmm. the logic is, is already built into me. You know, it's like an extension of that. So I'm kind of, I'm really glad I learned that all those years ago. Paid off. Yeah, you you could build off it. I remember doing some of that in high school, and and you're right. Once you learn some of that basic stuff, yeah, it it you understand. You you can understand the logic, it, um, in in other areas. Exactly, a lot of other things are are built off of that same idea. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that still use basic itself, like mechanical, uh, electromechanical stuff. Okay, it still is programmed in basic. Yeah, because it doesn't need anything fancy, right? No. I mean, I've got a uh, electronic board that you can use to control things. It's uh, called an Arduino, and uh, it uses its own language, but it's so close to basic that as I'm going through this, it like it all makes sense. Yeah, you understand the logic and the certain functions, and yeah, it's all basic logic. Just kind of hard. hard brain should work anyway yeah, analyzing data and doing something with it exactly and doing something processing information doing something different if x equals one or x equals two or y equals three you know yeah 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 cool stuff i love it um and that is it for me on computers uh back to cindy for science well no this is perfect because this has to do kind of with computers too all right all right this month in 1973 robert metcalf wrote a memo describing a way to transmit data from the early generation of personal computers to a new device, the laser printer. The laser printer. He called yeah, he called his multipoint data communication system Ethernet, and today it continues to dominate as the standard computer network. Now Ethernet is used to connect peer-to-peer -peer or computers to the internet. Computers to other devices that get them on the internet. Well, I think that's that's where it came from. Wow. That must have been the stepping stone for Al Gore to create the internet. Yeah. I'll just read read the rest of it real quick here because it's interesting. Now, um, it says a U.S. patent for a, quote, multipoint data communication system with collision detection, unquote. <laughs> for packets. Was, yeah, was issued uh, December 13, 1977 to Metcalf and others who developed the Ethernet. The patent was assigned to the Xerox Corporation. Huh. Interesting. Did you know that, that Xerox blamed Apple for stealing their uh, Windows? I thought that was IBM. Maybe IBM was busting Apple's chops. But I think uh, Jobs was getting a tour of Xerox or something like that and saw a system that was created in in house in Xerox for use on their systems, Windows driven kind of uh, computing mm -hmm. interface, and use that idea to gen to create the uh, Macintosh environment. That's right, and then uh, Windows stole it from Macintosh. Yeah. Who's next, Raj? What you got? Something? Uh, let's see. May 6th, 1937, was the crash of the Hindenburg. Oh. And, you know, that made Oh, the humanity! I, I still am not sure if they actually know what caused that. Now they're thinking it's weather. Lightning strike or something like that. Naturally, that changed the course of history so that they didn't use... Uh, hydrogen in their blimps anymore or uh, actually dirigibles or whatever they were calling them now they use uh, helium which is much safer the company uh, that designed and built the uh, Hindenburg actually is still in business and still making blimps really really yeah but they don't make uh, 
hydrogen-filled blimps anymore, of course. No. I think they learned their lesson on that one. And that company is called? Um, I don't remember. Oh. Goodyear? No. Goodyear. No, but I, I think they made the Goodyear blimp, actually. I'm sure I can find the name if you're really interested. Hold on a second. Do you remember a movie called Black Sunday? I never actually saw it, but I remember the commercials for it. I remember only the trailer because uh, growing up, we had this movie night at my house every once in a while. And uh, what it consisted of was all of the trailers for the movies that would be coming out in the coming months. Because my father would get reels and uh, and he would splice them all together. And we would sit there with popcorn and soda <laughs> watching like a half hour of trailers <laughs> for movies, not the actual movies. We used to have movie night too when I was a kid. I think it was a 8mm or a Super 8 my dad had. Well, and, you uh, you watched full movies. Yeah. But you actually watched movies. With no sound. <laughs> oh, all right. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. We actually had sound with ours. <laughs> no, we didn't have sound. But they weren't, weren't real movies. But the I have thing to is, tell you, though, it was cool. That's funny, because, though. Uh, I'm sorry, Roger. I was going to say, I know what movies <laughs> I want to see. Three Days of the Condor, The Sting, Paper Moon. I think I'd seen Paper Moon. I might have seen it, too. I've uh, seen it, but I really don't remember it that well. Three Days of the Condor, The Sting, uh, The Rhinestone Cowboy, and <laughs> and uh, Black Friday. Now, what were you going to say, Rod? Well, what I was about to say is, you know, we watched these movies, and they were you know, silent movies. But a lot of the silent movies, you would get the... Uh, I would call them subtitles because I don't know what they actually called them. Oh, they would put the yeah the little little audio card on there, or whatever the, the script yeah. card. But this didn't have any of that. It was just there was no sound. <laughs> My dad didn't have a a movie projector with sound, so we watched movies without it. I still enjoyed watching the old Abbott and Costello movies, though, even though there weren't wasn't any sound to it. But how could you enjoy it if you didn't know what the hell they were saying? I was a kid. I used my imagination. But your parents watched it too. Sure. It was a, a night, you know, it was family night. <laughs> some some uh, nights, it was usually a, a Sunday night. Sometimes we'd watch uh, Wonderful World of Disney. Other times we'd watch the, oh. uh, the old films. That's cool. And we'd mix it up. I used to love Sunday nights with the wonderful world of Disney. Yeah. <laughs> Man. There's Mutual a lot of, cool of stuff. Horrors, Wild Kingdom. Oh, yeah. Oh, Wild Kingdom. Yes. That came on right before. Right. Yep. That was great. Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That was like the first Discovery I Channel, love man. Love that. Yeah. You know? well, that show is back now, and it's on Animal Planet, I believe. Bringing science into the, uh, into the house. They were. That's what they were doing. Bringing, oh, it was great. Yep. Bringing the world and nature into the home. That, that was like the big step in, in, in making the world smaller. Because people, the minute we had film and, and TV, the world started getting, getting smaller. Because you could see places and, and experience places and cultures without having to pay to travel there. And now you can you can communicate with other cultures and other places with just the internet expense. I mean, the world is truly, uh, you know, super super small. And uh, remember that it's a small world after all. Disney attraction. Oh yeah. <laughs> I re- now I'll have that song stuck in my head for days. I it really is. It really is. I've got my own wild kingdom going on right here. I'm surrounded by kitty cats. <laughs> I have a general history thing here to follow right. up Roger's German airship Hindenburg. 
piece. May 7th, 1945, in a small red brick schoolhouse in Reims, Germany, Field Marshal <laughs> Alfred... Are you going to say this one next? No. Oh. I, I remember reading that one today. Field Marshal Alfred Jodl, right? Jodl? Jodl? Signed the unconditional surrender of all German fighting forces, thus ending World War II in Europe. Russia. Oh, I'm sorry. Russian... American, British, and French ranking officers observed the signing of the document, which became effective at one minute past midnight on May 9th, 1945. Jodl was then ushered into see Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who curtly asked Jodl if he fully understood the document. Eisenhower then informed Jodl, that he would be held personally responsible for any deviation from the terms of the surrender. Jodl was then ushered away. It's funny, as you were reading it, I was reading it word for word with you. Exactly. You probably go off the same website. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I bet you're not far after that. You saw the May 4th, 1970 at Kent State University, four students, Allison Krauss, 19, Sandra Lee Schuer, 20. It actually was earlier. On this page. Oh, Jeffrey Glenn Miller, 20, and William K. Schroeder, 19, were killed by a National Guardsman who opened fire on a crowd of 1,000 students protesting President Richard Nixon's decision in, uh, to invade Cambodia. 11 others, 11 were, others wounded. were wounded. Right. And? The shooting set off tumultuous campus demonstrations across America, resulting in the temporary closing of over 450 colleges and universities. <laughs> <laughs> word for word. <laughs> <laughs> And just, okay, before we get back to a science one, I have just one from last month. Yeah, I'm about out of stories unless I start scrolling through this page. 220 years ago, April 30th, 1789, George Washington became the first U.S. president as he was administered the oath of office. Office? The oath, the oath of office <laughs> on the balcony of Federal Hall at the corner of Wall and Broad Streets in New York. The building has changed since then, but Federal Hall is still there. And, uh, yeah, 220 years. Wow. Cool. That is very cool. So, uh, Cindy, do you have anything else or do you want to you call it a night or what? Well, I've got two more, but... I'll just do the one because it's. It, I like it. Yeah, whatever. If you want to do two, do uh, two. Stonehenge. Stonehenge. Okay. 1952. This is in May, of course. 1952. Professor Willard Libby determined the age of Stonehenge. Salisbury Plain, England. Mm -hmm. At about 1848 B.C. Wow. Give or take 275 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a margin of error. But he did this through analysis of carbon-14 radioisotope and charcoal remains excavated there because the carbon-14 ceases when the plants or animals die and the proportion of the organic remains steadily decline through the radioactive decay. So they look at the half-life of the carbon-14... And it was about 5,600 years. They measure the remaining portion in dead organic matter. Blah, blah, blah. So they figure out the, the age, give or take, a couple hundred right. years. Hey, it, it, it narrows cool. it down. Right. Cindy, do you understand the carbon dating? I learned it in like uh, 12th grade earth science, but I don't remember anything since then, no. But the interesting part here was that this astronomer, way back when, actually calculated that the uh, the age of this was uh, sixteen hundred eighty BC. Wow, give or take two hundred. Which is give pretty or take cool. Two hundred years. So basically, that's within the two hundred seventy-five years. So it was it was earlier. It was two hundred and something years earlier than the eighteen forty-eight. Well, no, the eighteen forty-eight. Is that date is based on the carbon dating. Oh. So they're considering that fairly, well, accurate within the right. realm of what science can do. 
But what they're saying is that a long time ago, this astronomer had predicted the age of Stonehenge oh. Oh, as being 1680 BC. So, uh, Roger, do you got anything else? Or, or Cindy, did you have a second one you said? Yeah, I don't know how interesting it is, though. You might want to just... You want you guys want to call it a night? Uh-huh. I'm getting sleepy. I'm a bobblehead over here. All right, well, let's do a closing then. Thanks, guys, for joining me for episode 25 of the Cosmic Pirate Podcast. Where the hell did I come up with that name anyway? If you go to the webpage, it'll tell you. Cosmic.myeyes.net What was that website? Cosmic.myeyes.net. Cosmic.myeyes.net. But I know we got some people listening. Well, we'd like to hear from them. Or they could Google Cosmic Pirate Podcast and find that website. And they can contact us using the Cosmic Contact form. Or they can email us at cosmicpirate at gmail.com. And I, th- I would like to hear from some people. Because I, I know we got some people listening. And if anyone's listening to this episode, send me an email. Say, hey, I'm listening. And give us an idea of, uh, of what you like, what you don't like, what you think we should keep doing. Um, we enjoy talking about technology, nature, science stuff, history stuff, funny, beer. wacky news, beer. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about. We'd like to talk about a lot of it and have fun doing it and stuff. Unfortunately, Dennis couldn't have been with us tonight, but he is a funny addition to the show, I think. Well, he was uh, with us in a sense because he was texting you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I had a good time. Thanks for joining me, Roger, Cindy. I look forward to another podcast. Listeners, thanks for listening. Continue listening. We know you're out there. And we know you're out there, like Roger said. So drop us an email or stop by or Google us. Tell us what you think. Leave a review on iTunes and um, hope to hear from you. And we'll see you guys all next time. Everybody have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Cosmic Pirate Podcast. Good night. Good night. Good night. I'm stopping the recording now.